Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. That was a really fast intro there. <laughs> Give me a second. On the fifth day of summer, my children have eaten three ice cream cones, 12 slices of pizza, two bananas, 26 juice boxes, 14 string cheeses, six cartons of strawberries, eight bowls of cereal, three cake pops, and a half a watermelon. But they are still hungry. That's from We Are Teachers. <laughs> we are in the fifth week of summer, and I think our kids have uh, consumed a lot more than that. Starting off with the usual technical difficulties, a mouse that doesn't want to walk on a live stream that started too quickly. So, <laughs> good afternoon, everybody, welcome and to welcome June. to our first live stream that's been on time uh, for what three months now. We had the um, had the delay we had to do for April, and then we had the May one that got canceled. So, well, go away to our 55th live stream uh, Q&A session. We'll be taking your questions in just a moment. Please get them in the moderators, and they'll get relayed on to my wife, who will then be very glad to pass them on. As usual, I am joined today by my beautiful co-host and wife, Sarah Fowler-Arthur. So, have you got any questions to start off with? We do. Uh, actually, the first one is a super chat from Dara Cloak. Hello, Isaac. Do you think humans are special and that we are the only intelligent civilization in the observable universe? Hmm. I think there's a, a lot of assumption there that we actually qualify as an intelligent civilization some days, I'm not so sure, but uh, I think it's it's possible that we would be in the absorbable universe. I don't like to use the term universe period in a case like that, just because you start getting outside the zone of where we can even look at, it gets kind of guesswork, but like I feel we've put forward a pretty strong case that there's at least a 50-50 chance there's nobody within our galactic supercluster area, and at that point in time, you're already looking at about a quintillion stars, or 10 to the 15th stars, sorry, 10 to the 18th yeah, stars at that point in time. So if you were to push that out to 10 billion light years, sort of uh, 1 billion light year radius, another three orders of magnitude, you're going from every planet that's got life as one option, would be 1 in 1, uh, it's up to 1 in 10 to the 18th, kicking it up to 10 to 24, doesn't really seem like we, it's still a factor of a thousand, but it's it doesn't seem that big of a deal at that point in time, going from 10 to the 18th to 10 to 21. Um, assuming we qualify as an intelligent species, I think there's a pretty decent chance it is actually just us and the Hubble volume. But I'd still say that we can really push for and say evidence-wise is that you can make a good case there's nobody within a supercluster of us. The next question is from Tim Timothy Kuiper. If the flow of time is not universally constant, how can astronomers be sure that distant galaxies are rotating too fast? Or perhaps it's just our perception viewed from a different space or time. <clears throat> That's actually quite possible. Um, one of the issues we have is like we interpret the universe as expanding, and that's one answer, but the other possibility of course is just that the everything in the universe is shrinking. I saw another one recently that was uh, trying to give a reason why we might have uh, no dark matter energy because of uh, modified Newtonian dynamics again, where light gets old faster or gravity gets weaker. And those have not been conclusively absolutely ruled out. I feel like the bullet cluster from it was a 2006, pushed really hard against that, but there's still room to be uncertain about that sort of thing. Um, the thing about when you're looking at a galaxy that's very far away is you're looking at being very redshifted, and of course the, the part of it that's turning away from you is going to be even more redshifted than the part that's turning towards you, it's a disk, right? Part of it's going this way, part of it's going that way, and it's doing it at a different speed. And it's pretty fast speed too, like all galaxies generally rotating on the hundreds of kilometers per second rate, 
well, where we're at, I believe it's like 260 or something like that. And that's far faster than anything we've sent to space, right? Relatively speaking, of course, that's how fast everything we're doing is going to, but we're not adding that speed. So that's a lot of shift value. And you think if you found a galaxy that was really off in terms of that, it, but they're not. They, they're about where they should be. Of course, they're about where they should be when we do all these adjustment factors on them. So if something about our, our overall, you know, template is wrong, that, that could actually pop into every single one. But it, it seems like that would be quite an awful lot of mistakes that are only getting caught to explain at this point. Imagination Ship asks, why do you believe faster than light to be impossible when we don't have a theory of quantum gravity? When we don't have a theory of quantum Well, um... The thing is, there's nothing about quantum or about uh, about relativity that would normally have anything to do with FTL. I think the the thing is, relativity says you can't do faster than light travel, but you could hypothetically start off faster than light with like something like a tachyon. Quantum tells you that you can have spooky action at a distance. Only that doesn't seem to actually pass any real data along. It's just one thing is being separate. Um, I'll give you an example. Let's say that there was only a very short distance in four dimensions that, that things could travel through, and that every object had one extra dimension, right angle, not like time, just one other dimension at a right angle to all the others. And so you got a particle here and a particle here that are separated by huge amounts of space in 3D, but just like with a piece of paper on the same space, but they're really close, you could have that spooky action across that very quickly without violating relativity, for instance. Um, we don't know what caused that spooky action at distance. We don't really know anything about what causes anything with quantum. Uh, however, there's nothing in quantum that has given us any reason to think that we can actually transmit information faster than the speed of light. And this is the key thing. We call it the speed of light because that's the first thing we measured at that speed. There's nothing, but it's not the speed of light. It's the speed of causality and time and effect, right? So gravity moves that speed. Information can move no faster than that. Light can move slower than that. Uh, what's more, uh, things can't move faster than the speed of light. The, almost everything in the universe is moving away from us faster than the speed of light. That's that's how that works out with that Hubble expansion. You get out past 13 billion light years, uh, and things are moving away from us faster than that. Um, information cannot go faster than that, though. And the thing about spooky action distance is it sends no information except the trivial one of, I exist in this state, or I exist in this one. That That's what it sends. You can't send anything else but that. And you can't determine the one to be the other. It's still random. So that's not sending information faster than the speed of light. And that's the key thing there is all these tricks, they, they might let you go f send a group of like wave packets faster than the speed of light or send galaxies faster than the speed of light. They're not sending information faster than the speed of light. And if you can't do that, you can't travel faster than light and you can't send communications faster than light, not the way we want to. That's the thing that doesn't get altered by spooky action distance. And that's why we tend to be kind of pessimistic about finding anything that could allow that, even with that seeming exception point. And the fact that everything's moving way faster than the speed of light, except this nearby value of space, would seem to be, you know, confusing too. But again, it's not the information that's traveling. It's just those objects. And that doesn't matter. You do the same thing with a little shadow dot on like Mars. You put a little dot here with a laser pointer, and on the other side of the planet you can move it over here, and you can whip that laser pointer around so it moved the dot faster than the speed of light across the surface, but no information traveled. Ready for the next question? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I feel like otherwise I'm going to have to go on a, a relativity lecture. That was always a hard one to do. Yes, well, stop the lecture. We just want a <laughs> simple answer. Uh, this one is, do you believe that NASA should have a presence in low Earth orbit or that NASA should hand over the low Earth orbit to private companies? Um, I mean, I don't think that any government would voluntarily sacrifice the ability to have a presence in, in low orbit. Um, 
and I, I think that this question who's actually authorizing it, but the question of does NASA need to be doing too much space, you know, information stuff up in low orbit? Well, the space station's in low orbit. Um, a lot of stuff we'd want to do there is, but it's not really a good place for telescopes anymore. A lot of what NASA would want to do really doesn't involve low orbit, and that's that's true enough. NOAA, for instance, uh, or weather, so they have much more of a reason to want stuff they are saying for defense, because they're looking down at the planet. Um, but I wouldn't know why, why NASA would want to not have an, a LEO presence anymore, just that it has less value to them than it has to other people, per se, but there's a lot of LEO. If we talk about how cluttered the orbits get, they have, remember, this is the size of a whole planet and then some. It is bigger than the surface of our planet in, in the orbit, and there are multiple levels to it, so that's a lot of room, even for as fast as these things move. That's a lot of room to put stuff without running into each other. <laughs> the next question is from Comkiller. Now that scientists have grown quote-unquote computers from human and rat neurons, able to play Pong or a flight sim, is there any advantage to using biocomputers like the Martian mechanists other than novelty? Uh, well, the mechanic, I'm assuming you're talking about 40K there. Uh, and the Mechanicum is... is Using those under the rule of cool, they, they take like lobotomized humans and put computer chips in their head, so they're not technically AI. That's that's what happens there. In that setting, they had the AI rebellion, uh, you know, Dune style, like a lot of things from 40K. And uh, that's how they get around it, because it, it looks awesome to jam wires in people's heads for miniatures. <laughs> but uh, they, they just grow brain matter and connect it with wires. Uh, or they take a clone or a prisoner and, and do that to them. It's quite a bleak setting. Um, I don't think that would ever be terribly advantageous in a situation like that, but biocomputers have the advantage that they're probably more comfortable for people to use something like, um, we talk about putting people, you know, chips in people's heads for this or that. I think a lot of people find it much more comfortable to have a, a, a chunk of their DNA used to grow neurons and their pattern that we could then insert in their head that was supposed to be the, uh, quick calculator chip as it were, as opposed to having a chip one there. For my part, I don't personally think I care one way or another, whatever works and is less likely to cause me uh, physical ailment, but I think for a lot of people that biological computer might be a nicer one to have. But, I mean, do you care whether or not the AI that kills you is, is running on silicon or, or vacuum tubes or um, neurons? <laughs> I don't think it makes that much of a difference. So another question here, since the surface of a planet is relatively fragile, would it be easier to, quote, just turn its patent star into a shikata thruster to tow the planet where you want it, rather than to move the planet directly? Patent star? It says, yes, that's what it says, P-A-T-E-N-T. Patent? Probably, probably, it's probably payon star. Is it a typo? <laughs> so, I'm going to work on the assumption it's a payon star. So, um, uh... It's kind of a hard one. I think if you try and move a planet by itself a large distance away from its star, you're going to have to come up with an entire shielding mechanism to protect it from interstellar radiation, especially when it starts getting up to speed, interstellar dust and gas. Um, and so you're going to end up putting a shell around the planet anyway. But you got to do that with a Chicago thruster, realistically. If you plan to go very fast, then the bow shockwave that star has from its solar wind and magnetosphere is not going to clear your volume. So... Um, you're still going to get bugs on the windshield, only in this case the bugs on your windshield are, you know, rocks that are moving at relativistic velocity, like nuclear bombs hitting your atmosphere, so that could be problematic. Um, as if it says, I say could be problematic, because I don't know that it would actually matter if you had the occasional small uh, nuclear bomb that wasn't actually full of fissile material was slamming into your atmosphere. Um, I think that it's always going to be easier to move a planet than a star, but the nice thing is that a star provides the fuel to move itself, 
whereas a planet does not, uh, unless you were using Instatelium to run a fusion plant, so or black hole generator, same difference then. Um, I think that would be the big one, though, is it's almost always going to be some way to contrive it to be easier to just send the planet. Floor Horbeck is asking, do you think the Schrodinger equation has to be replaced if we want to combine quantum mechanics and general relativity together, since superposition seems to be the culprit? Hmm. Um. <coughs> Possibly. I think the thing is, when we were talking, well, back in the day we had the electric force, we had the mechanical force, we had the electrochemical forces, we had the magnetic force, we had weak nuclear, we had strong nuclear, and we started to be able to unify some of these. And then to our surprise, we found a way to probably unify the strong nuclear force with the weak and electromagnetic. We can definitely do the electromagnetic and the electroweak. Um, and we say, well, then we could surely, you know, add gravity in there too. We can unify that. I tend to feel like grand unified theories, and this, this isn't necessarily grand unified in this case, can be problematic because you're assuming that these will actually flow together in some easy mold if you just keep poking at them. Uh, the same to me often seems to apply to something like quantum gravity versus, um, you know, relativistic or macroscopic scale things. I do not know that we should be assuming that there is some behind the scenes single one that works there. Um, and that these are both just emergent properties of it, that either everything at the relativistic level is somehow an emergent property of quantum, even though it doesn't seem to work that way, or that both are emergent from something below. There could be, I mean, there could be really far down the tree too, but um, they could just be completely separate things and you just don't see the effect of one at the other scale. Um, but I don't think that, I mean, same as you can't, you can't use Newton's equations to cover relativity without having to add that factor on there. I don't think you could ever have either one working at the other scale without some additional factor. I'm not sure you could actually pull that off either. Um, Welcome. That you should mute your notifications because they are oh. coming through. So every time <laughs> yeah. someone's leaving us a question here, it's dinging on the live yep, stream. Yep, thank you. Let me go um, while you're doing that, here's a thought from Casper Litigard. Hi, you two. What is the best method to melt a tunnel of sorts through the ice of the moon Europa? And regards from C Copenhagen, Denmark. And Kath, I think I said his, the gentleman's name already, Casper Litigard. So the easiest way right now, if we had to do something right now, I would say would probably be to take a large sample of uh, RTG, radioactive isotope thermal generator, use that to power the spacecraft when it gets there, and then just have the power plant melt down through the ice. Um, you could potentially have like something just spread out on top, anchor itself in there, and then drop it as tether as it melts its way through. Um, and assuming you do that wide enough, you shouldn't have a problem with it just collapsing back down because the gravity is very low. Um, that would strike me as the easiest way to just make sure you got that done because there's no mechanisms to really break there other than possibly the thing up top, which might be spooling it down, but they keep that hot too. Uh, that would be how I would do it. It's not going to be the fastest way, and it's probably not the most economical because that would be a lot of isotope, but at that scale, considering how much it's going to cost the thing out there, I don't think that would be the big factor of stopping it either. <laughs> a lot of plutonium, one ton of plutonium, let's go with that. I think yours is still giving notifications. It is seeming to be doing that, yeah, I'm um, not sure. While you're looking at that, no. Albert Jackinson says, Hi, Isaac and Sarah. It's great to be back. I just finished Revelation Space... Um, what happened there? Are we still on? We are, we are definitely still on. I okay. I, hi, Isaac and Sarah. It's great <sighs> to be back. 
I just finished Revelation Space a few weeks ago, so thank you so much for mentioning it years ago. I have been asking questions on here for four years. Thank you for giving great answers all the time, and I really appreciate it. Truly, I do. I heard a question about Revelation Space, but then... No, no, it was a comment. Oh, it's a great book series. <laughs> Let's see if I can... What happened? Uh, we seem to be having one of the models going down. One's back up, the other's back up. All right, let's assume we are actually live and walking again. There we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so... I think this is the problem when you do these live streams exactly one time a month and then skip them occasionally, is, is there's always some minor technical glitch that just completely throws the... So, so I, if there was a lot of background noise as I was reading the mm -hmm. comment there from Albert, mm -hmm. um, it's because we have this little remote control oh, yeah, for the yeah. TV, but it don't do it. It operates the... <laughs> Same frequency. There's a big air filter over there, like a turbo one for when I was a smoke off, seen by the other monitor that's on the side over there for us both to see the stream through. And the one will, when you hit the power button on the television, which for some reason is frozen, it will put the air filter on maximum. And then it sounds like we're getting ready to take off. And I, I highly recommend stream. that model for anyone who is a chain smoker still, because that thing could actually clear the room when I was smoking. So. Let me retry Albert's uh, <laughs> post. He had a lot of uh, great comments, and I, I want people to catch it. So he said that he just finished Revelation Space a few weeks ago, and he thanks you for mentioning it years ago on the stream. He also has been asking questions for mm -hmm. four years. Yeah, so it has been a while. It's yeah. been the fourth fourth anniversary. Yeah, he's been around since like the original live stream. He that. says, "Thanks you for giving great answers all the time. I really appreciate it. Truly, I do." Here's to another four, and he has two questions for us today. <laughs> One: How do you come up with all those amazing ideas in the Life in 2023 episode? They were all so incredibly creative. And two, have you read Project Hail Mary yet? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, Andy Weir is a great writer. I think my favorite book by him is Still the Motion, but that one I, I did like I did like Hail Mary better than, than Artemis, which was a pretty good one too. Um, but The Motion is still my favorite by him. He is a great writer. Um, as to how do I come up with those ideas, uh, I usually try to think about how something that seems mundane is a minor change would mess everything up in somebody's life if it happened to either them or one of their relatives. Like, what would actually happen if you were suddenly blind? That suddenly changed your whole life around. A lot of these things we'll ask ourselves is, what would actually happen if you suddenly found that you were going to live to be 500 years old or could live that old? How does that change your perspective? And you try to think of, you know, what's a cool thing that would happen? But then you follow up as, what's the most irritating side effect of this? And you say, well... Now that everyone's leaving 500, you're going to be coming in as the junior partner at some form and getting promoted when you're 500, because that's how it's going to age out. And similar things would happen, like we used to joke in physics, you want to get tenure on the reception, you had to wait for somebody to, to die out eventually, and nobody ever retired, and they'd be in there until they were 90. Physicists live forever, it's just one of those things that I'm happy about personally. Um, but uh, you know that, that's just one of those effects that we see coming in from this or that technology. Same thing for, well, now I've got this wonderful thing that helps me sort stuff so much better, like ChatGPT. What's the nice benefit of something like ChatGPT? Well, with a little bit more modification improvement, it's going to handle a lot of the customer service issues we have. Because 90% of the time you want to talk to customer service, it's something really easy, but you want to be able to ask the question as you're hearing it, and then the machine's going to actually give you some kind of answer. And then 10% of the time it can't, it kicks you to somebody who's actually an expert on it, 
who gets paid better. That's the ideal. The downside, of course, is that means that suddenly you have an entire sector of our economy, customer service, uh, that a lot of people have as an entry-level job or something in college that is no longer there. And so that's kind of how we look at these things is I just try to think of something cool about it and then try to think about the most irritating or aggravating aspect of this in people's normal lives. Did you happen to remember to put in there how important it's going to be in the first 10 years of life to learn good hygiene habits? So if somebody's not like picking up their socks every day or brushing their teeth or putting on deodorant, can you imagine having to live with them for 500 years instead of 100 years? Oh, good God, yeah, that would be... So we have little kids, seven, six, and five years old. Uh, <laughs> yes, they are the uh, impetus of that question. <laughs> so I brush my teeth today. <laughs> anyway. Well, you know the thing is it's hard to realize, and, and this is one of those things about AI that we learn is, is kind of like when you have kids too, is those things you that you can't even remember learning because they're so far back there foundationally, and you have to then explain it to a machine or to a little kid, and they just wouldn't think to do it. Um, and uh, there's so many examples of that where you just, it would be really obvious to you. You would never think someone have a context and say, look at this jigsaw puzzle and tell me what you see. And it's a bunch of jigsaw bits, right? And you say, oh, I, you know, this is the picture of the jigsaw. Well, people say, well, see, there's two different images here. It's not done yet. Over here, we see a dinosaur. Over here, we see a tree. And whoever's looking at that one part sees a completely different picture. They don't realize it's one big jigsaw. And you ask the AI, what do you see? It says, I see a gigantic mass of fibrous cables connected together of a strangely homogeneous amount. There's a bunch of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen there. Say, so you're describing the paper it's made out of, aren't you? Yes. You didn't tell it what it wants to see. Okay, that's what it saw. Well, I see a lot of infrared coming off this paper. So, next question. <laughs> uh, we have a $20 super chat from Freedom Fiend. Thank you. Recently, a seemingly credible military figure claimed that the U.S. is hiding alien craft and bodies from the public and is picking up traction in Congress. Do you think it's going somewhere, or is it just hot air? Um, I mean, you can't say it's hot air until someone's really had a chance to look at it. This is the important thing to remember from a skeptic angle on this stuff is it's not our job, as, as and I'm assuming if you're on the skeptic side of these things, not our job to immediately say something is not true just because it, it, the other ones won't. Um, 99 phenomena being XY does not mean that the other next one 100 isn't or is. And there's also the issue of credibility is, like I'm ex-military, I have tons of friends who are ex-military. Uh, some of them are honest, some of them are, are not. And others are also very easily deceived by time or memory. If I'm right with this guy, he is saying that he has evidence or proof that other people had told him that this was the case, that people had told him or indicated they had this. Um, and I can't really speak to that. I'm waiting to let other people kind of pick that apart because that's not my interest. Right? If it turns out that there's validity to it, then it deserves to be investigated more. If not, then it doesn't. The, the other aspect of that also remember is we say from Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And, and I love Sagan, but the, everything about that statement is wrong. Right? Uh, the, the level of certainty you have is based on the level of evidence you have. Extraordinary ones, who defines what's extraordinary, either evidentially or in terms of a claim. The amount of evidence he needs to present to this should be no more or less than any other claim, and to be honest with me, that we ought to assume that aliens had visited us and left bodies behind. But I would want to see a pretty high level to prove that. There's also the thing is, where conspiracy is concerned, it doesn't necessarily mean that whatever people have been conspiring to cover up was actually true. As uh, an example, say JFK, when he got shot, there was all these people who claimed it was, it was the FBI, it was the CIA, it was Russia, it was Cuba, it was the Mafia. And you could be a member of one of those organizations and be like, oh my God, did we do that? 
and start covering it up, not realizing that your organization had not done it. That sort of thing can happen. So it needs a lot more investigation, but it deserves to be heard out. But it also deserves to be heard out reasonably. So, you know, we, we can't just assume because somebody happens to have a high credibility level themselves and isn't lying, you know, because I don't think it's very likely you would, uh, that we shouldn't rule that out either, um, that they're actually right. Because you can be as honest as you want and still be wrong. It has nothing to do with the person's credibility in their field. Avi Loeb, um, I respect him. He's one of the best physicists out there. And yet, at the same time, I completely disagree with him on uh, Muamua and what that asteroid indicates. That doesn't mean that he's not a credible source. It just means on that, he and I disagree about what that evidence says. We have a super chat from someone that uh, did not provide their name, wanting to know what the epic soundtrack in Coexistence with Aliens at position 1405 was that was accidentally in the video. Oh, he says that I one's un- weird. Unsuccessfully tried yeah. to shazam it. <laughs> it put that in the comments below or the email that to me at my uh, yeah, Isaac.author.youtube. It's the letter YouTube at gmail.com, and I will look that up for you. Uh, <laughs> was it actually accidental? Well, it was accidental, but it, it's been on, on Nebula that way the whole time. And because Nebula doesn't have any comment feature and nobody emailed me to let me know, it didn't occur to me to check that for an error, so I just put them all in there. That's just that's just a glitch um, on my part. So <laughs> That'll be fun to look at. Um, Charles Rockefeller says, aside from the potential results being an expanding mm-hmm. domain wall bubble of death, what are your thoughts on natural or artificial symmetry break causing generation zone particles? So you have to give me that one again because I was trying to think about what the background was on that one. I bet it probably was the music from uh, from. Are you still on the last question? Yeah, well, yeah, let's go to the next one. Sorry about that. Reread this one? Yeah. Charles Rockefeller says, aside from the potential result being an expanding domain wall bubble of death, what are your thoughts on a natural or artificial symmetry break causing generation zone particles? Hmm. I'm just going to say that I'm an insufficient as a cosmologist to answer that one at this time. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, there's a couple things that come to mind on that, but I, I'm a little worried they'll, go, they'll more likely be wrong than right at the moment. And I'd rather not try to say them, so... You can also email me that one, and I will get back to you with an answer. It, one that I'm confident is horribly wrong at the very least. So. Clash says, at what point in the process of colonizing space would something like an orbital ring or a launch loop be needed? One million people in space, 10 million, 100, etc. I think one million is probably the figure, but it's more about who's traveling back and forth. Like, if there were a million people on Mars and only a thousand people came back and forth each year to each planet then there's no need for it. But if you're trying to actually move a million, I mean, I think I usually say a million people a day going to space or a million tons of cargo going day to space. Once you get to that number, you have to have something like this in place because otherwise you're talking about doing 100,000 large rocket launches a day or something like that. It's not going to work. Um, but uh, you could probably start building it way before that. You can actually make a case for making it when there's just a thousand launches or something like that a day. But I think that if you're at the million people per day or a million people in space living there, that's definitely the zone where you'd be thinking of making one of those. Thales Polly says, if we live in a simulation, how may it affect our possibilities to advance and even discover technology? Hmm. Um, the thing about if we live inside a simulation is that we have to assume that the, the rules that exist here 
all, all actually in place to control what we're seeing. So if I want to have a simulated universe, I can just do a brute force hack to have no other alien life forms emerge on it and still have it as a high likelihood that, that uh, it would evolve. But just every time it evolves, the simulation crushes it because it's not the place you want it. That's something you can do in a simulation. But by default, usually you assume a program who's that good doesn't have to do too many of those kind of um, abridged hacks that give it away. They might not care if they get away too. Um, but you expect the rules of the system to be more or less set up to produce the results that you want as opposed to using all those brute force hacks. But you can't assume that they're not there. Um, the biggest thing about something in a simulation is you have to assume that since they don't seem to change it very often, that at least inside ours, the goal is not to change them based on what we're seeing. Um, at least to do that very rarely. Of course, they could always just be making us not notice when they have those changes too. <laughs> Christian Carello, thank you for your super chat. Just because something would break causality, does it really mean that it can't be broken? It's like saying it's impossible to drop a vase for that reason. Um, I mean, that's that's a valid way of looking at it in some ways, but the thing is, if something's impossible inside your universe, it should not be physically possible inside your universe to make that happen. So when we say, we're not talking about breaking a glass. Yeah, I, can, I can break this in physical reality very easily. Uh, but causality, if you can break it, then, then you can break it. When we say you can't break causality, what we're saying is it's not physically possible to do that. Not that's an undesirable outcome. Um, I don't know how you would actually break causality. And it, it depends on what model of time you're looking at. And the answer is that we don't know how time works. Well, I would say X, Y, or Z. But I go back in time to, to kill Hitler. That's the, the most common use of time travel. And then I go and I shoot him, and World War II never happens, or it ends earlier, or some other tyrant gets in there who's even worse. Whatever the case is, now I, today, no longer have a motivation to go back and shoot him, because he's already been shot, right? Uh, so I don't travel back in time, and that loop just doesn't happen. Um, we could do the same thing with, like, well, I'm going to go back in time and see this event. Well, now you've gone back in time and seen that event. Uh, did you cause something to happen, though, that, that rippled out even from that? And that's that butterfly effect part that you have with time travel too, because all I did was go back in time to look at these dinosaurs, and oops, I accidentally stepped on a moth, and, and now that moth wasn't there to be eaten by something and something, and, and as a result, the whole civilization and everything changed. You can't avoid changing time as an observer at all, but you might ask whether or not it'd be enough to cause you not to time travel. And we have episodes on that, our, our Temporal Paradox episode, discuss that in more detail. But if you can violate causality, and we, and we don't know that you can't, right? If you can, it tends to look like almost every time you would, you kind of break the circuits that you wouldn't do it again in the future. And I think that's part of the issue there. But again, we don't know enough about how time works to be saying definitively, no, you can't do it. The Miami's Last Capitalist also had a super chat. What happened to Gary Googleson after transmitting himself to the ship? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure I should answer that. Uh, I mean, to be fair, since he's not real, and I didn't think beyond that, um, I cannot say for sure. I've considered possibly that he survives that trip. Oh, that's a philosophical... So I'll rephrase that. Whether or not he'd survive a teleportation transfer as himself is not something that we can answer in a known science yet. Therefore, we don't know if he survived that trip. However, a copy of him, and whether that copy arrived intact and, and acted like him, and we don't know if that's a copy or the original him, that we can't answer, and I choose to assume that he did, because I like him as a character, and I hate to, to stop him out. But we should not make that as canon, because you're supposed to come away with that episode 
with whatever you like that story to be. But if I were to decide in the future that I wanted to continue the story of Emily, Gary, and Fido on that ship, then the answer would be that yes, he did survive. So, <laughs> so let's let's go with yes for happy ending on that. That Gary did survive and didn't compromise his his uh, individuality or personhood. So <laughs> I love happy endings, don't you? Well, we all like so happy endings, better. but they, 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 they're less interesting for the next story. It's like, this is a happy ending. Well, we decided we want a trilogy, so it's not so happy after all. Yes, huh? Then you have happy ending, happy ending, happy ending. Well, well I, I don't see any problem with that. The, the worst ones for me, and they make for good stories, so if you're right, I'll ignore this as advice, but the worst ones for me are where your, your, your good guys beat the bad guy, and what that actually did was free up an even worse bad guy who was somehow being kept in check by that bad guy. So, so you tell me the entire point of the first story was that the heroes screw things up. I'd say, well, it makes for a decent fiction out there, but yeah. <laughs> now, before we go into hypothesizing about who you're actually talking about, I have a few uh, quick comments here, and then we need to go to our break because it's time for chocolate. It is. Oh, is it? Okay. So. <laughs> um, we have a $2 super chat from Vincent Thank Cleaver, you. and he just wanted to comment Isaac and Sarah having issues in the SFIA bat cave. Gerton Isnick, uh, also a super chat. Thanks for the faith in humanity that you've given me. And uh, he seems to be expressing a general sentiment for a lot of folks in the chat today. We also had a super chat from Munix. And today's Stumped Isaac Award goes to Charles Rockefeller. <laughs> Thanks. Time for a drink and a snack. Have a great break. <laughs> we'll see you in a few. I can make the mouse work. We'll be on break for a couple of minutes, and it's a great time to grab a drink and a snack and get more questions at our moderators for part two. This was our first live stream since mid-April, as we had to reschedule and eventually cancel the one for May while I was recovering from some minor surgery. You've probably noticed the last few months we've had a lot of image bowls with some potential episodes and cover art up. For those curious, I'm not sure if that's a permanent feature of the show, but I've been enjoying putting those together and getting feedback on what people like to decide if it's worth making an episode out of. We've done that for years with episode titles in various forms, but YouTube has finally put a nice system in place for pulling those, so we're taking advantage of that. All the more so as various sci-fi art is often my inspiration for a given episode, so it's nice to share that with the title. You might also have noticed that we've been experimenting a bit with YouTube Shorts. YouTube has been poking me and other creators to make them for years, and I figured I might as well try some short-form content that folks might see and decide they like an expanded discussion on, like a given megastructure or space drive summary. I can borrow those from old scripts to save time, but I would like to make some genuinely new content for those too. Brevity is not a virtue I tend to have in abundance, so it's more of a trial and experiment and no, we are absolutely not switching to that format at the expense of any of our normal full-length episodes. I always like to experiment with new options for the channel and have had to put a lot on hold while we're in the process of adopting our kids, which is still in progress and has been since last fall, but they're pretty settled in and Sarah and I have had some time and attention to spend on other tasks. On that note, let me apologize for being a little less active on our social media forums during that time and for any future interregnums should I suddenly get hyper-busy again. Normally it's one of the places I fish for episode ideas and new concepts too, and I want to thank everyone on those and on our image polls for helping on brainstorming concepts and episode ideas. One of the awesome things about running this show is how smart and creative the audience tends to be, 
which not only helps the channel come with great topics, but at a personal level, it is nice to share chat on these topics I love so much with other folks who feel the same, and presumably for folks to chat with each other too. On that note, I want to say thanks to Morv and the other moderators over at our Reddit forum, it's grown impressively in activity and size of late due to their hard work keeping the quality up and encouraging a friendly and thoughtful environment people can exchange ideas on. We are always in need of good mods who don't mind spending some of their free time helping SFIA's various forums be great places for like-minded folks to hang out and share their love of space, science, futurism, sci-fi, and more. Speaking of that, if you're Discord friendly and would be interested in helping us moderate our monthly livestream Q&As, shoot me and one of our Discord mods a message after the show. You can find our Reddit and Discord links, along with all of our other social media like Facebook, in the description of today's episode or any recent one, and they are all great places to not just discuss ideas, but get questions answered if you don't want to wait for the live stream. And speaking of that, let's get back to our live stream and more of your questions. Always something, isn't it? <laughs> no, we won't have any technical difficulties, I just... Took long as I was planning to the microwave to get more coffee. So we are back for part two. Hopefully we stuck around for that. We are planning to do a lightning round uh, this afternoon. So if you have any additional questions that uh, you'd like to get in that are one-liners or require a one-line answer, please feel free to pop those in. I like to try to rattle off 8, 10, 12 of those right at the end to see if we can stump Isaac. Although, uh, as we commented before the break, uh, Charles Rockefeller already got the Stump Isaac Award for today, so <laughs> somebody could see if they could top that. Are you ready to uh, jump back in? in? We have a question from Clash. What are your honest thoughts about SpaceX's lunar starship being used for the Artemis program? Um, you know, I, I think I like the idea overall. Um, Artemis strikes me as... I, I, hmm. I'm be kind of careful here because I'm going to either say something that's not really technically correct or would offend somebody at NASA. Um, there's a lot of material that still needs to be filled in about what they're planning to do with Artemis, and until that is done, uh, a lot of the other details can't really be said to be the best idea or the worst idea of yet. I think that I like the idea of a more robust Artemis than I've seen thus far, though, in terms of it doesn't really seem to have a lot of ISRU aspects for it. They don't seem to want to do a lot of actual in-situ resource utilization. Jacob Germany says, would it eventually be possible when humans diverge into countless subspecies for there to be variants that have heritable cybernetics, either mechanical or even electronic? I think so. Um, I mean, we were just talking only about biocomputers. You could make something like that have DNA, so it doesn't necessarily have to have DNA to be biological, I suppose, but um, you can make something that had DNA that replicate that computer, and then that could just becomes either a separate set of code, like your RNA is for your mitochondria or for some of the viruses that are in your stomach, or as something that's paired along that with your own DNA. And I think, you know, we didn't know what DNA was to about 50 years ago, and we have, I think, put a little bit too much of personality onto it. Say, so, well, if it's got your DNA, it's you. Well, okay, that dead skin cell over there doesn't have any DNA, and that guy over there, he has almost identical DNA to me. He might even be close to some of the cells in my body that have mutated from other cells at this point. He's not me. Uh, but those gut bacteria in my stomach, they are as much part of me as the mitochondria, which don't have my DNA either, or my blood cells, or my white cells. They, they, these are just part of the system that is me. So is this. There's no DNA here, but my glass are very much part of me. 
Um, so I, I think that you would have people say, well, whether it's inheritable through DNA or its own separate DNA, or just that you inherit the cybernetics that Grandpa had because he passed the laundry when he died, you know, um, I think that we definitely see a lot of heredity in these things. I think we could build that in to be self-building on somebody. They're born and stuff just wires its way in as appropriate. I, I think I'm going to stick this little one-liner in here <laughs> at the moment. We have a super chat from C.R. Smith, and he says, Why is Isaac Ar Arthur the best-looking science tuber? <laughs> and I'm going to guess that it has something to do with the DNA you inherited. <laughs> I can oh, oh wait. No, I should flatter myself. And your beautiful wife keeping you in order. Although she you is keep actually very good order. for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I would say one, that you've not been looking around enough science YouTube channels. Um, but uh, two, um, I never got compliments on any tie I ever wore in my entire life. And I, I certainly wore them reasonably often that I, I didn't wear them that often. She got me two ties, uh, not long after we got married. And I, I wouldn't wear them at first because I was a little worried they looked silly. And I've gotten more tie, more compliments on each of those ties, in the in the the maybe couple dozen times I've worn each one of them, than I've gotten for every other tie I've worn in my life combined. So I, I think, moral you know, of the story: get a wife. <laughs> <you're right. laughs> that I would say. The, well, the moral of the story is: if your wife's got better taste than you, let her dress you. That, I that, don't dress you. Well, but you help select the clothes out. Correct. It also looks better when you match too. So that's <laughs> true. Very true. Well, thank you for that. Um, anyway, I, I would say falling in line with your last question, it's also probably partially DNA and those new cybernetic glasses. <laughs> Isaac Bordeaux, another longtime channel favorite, says, I wanted to start an astronomy class at my high school, and I was wondering what aspects of space and astronomy you think teenagers would most enjoy. Um, good question. Uh at our old school, as we say, Dr. Barrick with John Barrick, he was uh, our regular teacher of a class called Seven Ideas That Shook the Universe. Um, and another one that was our Frontiers in Astronomy course. Those are both, uh, what we call them LER was that school, but learned electives, basically, that usually went over very well with people as like their science one, and it was non-algebra based. Those were really popular, uh, so I would definitely recommend it. Brian, right under this new version, but Byron Anderson, he was our... Uh, vice chair when I was going to school there, but uh, he wrote that book, so you should be able to find that. On the seven ideas that shook the universe, that was all material that a high schooler who was on the smaller side wouldn't have any problem covering. And I'd say that uh, a lot of the focus of that is astronomy, but for astronomy specifically, um, there's always the optics. Some people love the optics. Some people can't stand the optics. I've never cared about the optics in astronomy. Um, that's one of those ones where some of the people will love that, but I was find it boring. So you throw a different button in, which would be like talking about parallax and how we just go at how far away the stars are, for instance. That's another good one. Some people will love the constellations. Uh, some people are more planets, more stars. Exoplanets are a good one to discuss, too. People tend to find exoplanets fascinating these days. We have a super chat also from Christian Corello. How's nuclear propulsion similar or different to the Orion Drive, and how can either be improved for more efficient interstellar travel if possible? Also, hold that thought. <laughs> Also, what are your thoughts on nuclear Stirling engines? Okay. Um, Orion drives are a subset of nuclear drives in general. The Orion drive, the post-nuclear uh, drive, is where you set the nuclear bomb up behind the thing that pushes on the, you know, the ship. The, the Medusa drive has got the backwards for that where you put a big long you know, sail in front of you and set the nuke off by that, and then on a tether, that pulls you along. Um, and I think that, that, that in certain circumstances, the Medusa is going to be handier because you could actually deploy that 
near a planet on some tether that's like a thousand kilometers long. You put it further away from the planet so the bombs can detonate and pull you up. Um, not out of an atmosphere, mind you, but up from like low orbit. Um, nuclear proportion in general, though, is just trying to go after the idea that there's a lot more power uh, to be harnessed from a nuclear reaction than from anything chemical. And how you go about harnessing, there's so many different ways, but it's also got its limitations. A lot of the ways we would do nuclear, you're not getting that million to one ratio. Like normally we'd say if there's a million times more nuclear energy in something than chemical, out of even a good ego fuel like hydrogen. But you can't get that out of there, not with the kind of engine you would normally put together. You can do it out of a very slow process with like a fission reactor. But anything you're trying to do fast, you have to worry about melting everything. Or, and this is the other one, running out of propellant. Because I can use these reactions to heat up a ton of hydrogen to a certain temperature and a higher one that I would get by just burning it, but not that much higher because it would melt the engine. And I run out of hydrogen too fast, so my ship got this great reactor, but it's out of fuel. You know, it's out, sorry, not fuel propellant. Um, so you got like the nuclear light bulb versions, those run on photons, you can do those indefinitely. Um, you've got the ones that would run on a close cycle and just heat fuel up. You got ones that would just electrically run an ion generator. And we covered a ton of these in the uh, the Advanced Spaceship uh, it? Advanced Spaceship Drive Compendium, which was the redo of our Spaceship Proportion episode that had all the stuff on the EM Drive, which I barely covered on that one, thankfully. Um, EM Drive was all the rage when we did the first episode. And that one's going to discuss that more, so with a nuclear option. Um, but any of those options are pretty good in my mind. So long as people are comfortable to let you actually do some uh, some transport of nuclear materials up into space on a regular basis. Jeff Payne says, wouldn't the mass of propellant increase the weight mass of the vessel? I'm sorry, I think I misread that. Wouldn't the mass of the propellant increase as the weight mass of the vessel also increased? So shouldn't the actual thrust be the same as you approach the speed of light? Um. You can keep the thrust the same, but the thrust isn't going to get you the same amount of acceleration uh, at a certain point. Um, this is the, the key thing about the rocket equation is that, well, it's the same thing we have with relativity. In relativity, I have a wheelbarrow that is my normal rest mass, right? I have this wheelbarrow and I'm pushing along and it's empty. As I get faster, I must put more mass in there because my kinetic energy of motion now counts as part of that energy mass. I'm pushing energy more than I'm pushing mass. Mass is just one type of energy. So every bit faster I go, there's more stuff in that wheelbarrow I have to shove along. Vest mass is the base wheelbarrow, and at a certain point, we get to about 86% of light speed, you now have as much kinetic energy in terms of mass, or weight, if you were there, as you do that wheelbarrow. And every time you get a little bit faster, that mound goes up until eventually it's ridiculously huge and making it the majority of that. And your time starts running a lot slower at that point, too, because your time is what's experienced by that wheelbarrow when it's empty. Uh, it slows down as you add more to the wheelbarrow. Uh, the rocket equation is the same thing, but kind of backwards. If you actually want to get to a destination at a higher speed, you need to start off with a much heavier wheelbarrow because you have to carry that fuel with you. And every extra little bit faster you want to go, you need to put more in that wheelbarrow to help push only not itself and that wheelbarrow, but all the other fuel with you. And that's basically why you are always slowing down. It's producing less net acceleration because you got more stuff to push. We had a super chat from uh, Nut V and it has a picture of a 
spaceship beaming you aboard. Really? They believe in the chat. They have found your secret alien identity. <laughs> Thank you. Winton Ashley, also a super chat. Thank you. Is there such a thing as an optimal shape for a spacecraft? If so, what? I imagine an elongated ellip ellipsoid sort of seed-like in shape. Hmm. I mean, it depends on what the drive is and what you're going through. So we say spacecraft, right? Um, if I'm going through a relatively thick part of the galaxy, my optimum spaceship cut through a nebula is as needle-like as I can get because every bit of surface area you got is more problematic. Unless you're using something like a Busard ramjet. And I say something like because the basic Busard ramjet doesn't work. Something was like sucking energy in to, you know, convert it into a black hole into thrust. Um, then you want something that's kind of wide on the front. Um, if you're dealing with a planet and you want to slow down, something wide might be appropriate too. Something saucer-like works really well if you've got anti-gravity. Someone said, well, was a UFO ever actually makes sense that it would saucer on? I said, well, yeah, if you've got anti-gravity, it's perfect. It's actually not a bad design if you actually want to have that as a spinning, rotating section. It would be much bigger at that point. But uh, you have a big wheel, big ring, and you just have siding on it. Uh, to keep radiation out and to keep your lower gravity supplies available. So there's a lot of weird designs that you would think of as being impractical, but they make sense in certain contexts. Like, you really don't have much reason to build something such as the Enterprise. They got their saucer for habitation, and then you have their naysayers fall apart because they're highly radioactive, if memory serves. That's the reason. The real reason is it looks cool. But um, in the Expanse series, they point out that a lot of the, you know, the big battleships, but they're basically always an office building in space, uh, both in the sense they're built like a skyscraper that's accelerating from the bottom uh, with the engine in the basement, and because most of what's really being done on board those ships is kind of paperwork and software. They're not like getting ready to go fight people hand to hand. So We have a follow-up to the previous question from Aprotisis. Wait, if velocity increases mass, couldn't you create artificial gravity by just spinning matter underneath the floor faster and faster? Uh, you know, the problem with trying to do a lot of these things when you start running numbers, you realize that it's it's uh, not as viable as you would think. Uh, first off, if I'm spinning you faster and faster on a ring, that's fine, but the problem is when you do it, well, with sphere specifically, right? If you're inside a hollow sphere, that, that outer edge can be as massive as you want, and you're never going to get artificial gravity in like a Dyson sphere because it completely cancels out. It's just the geometry involved. Those bits that are further away from you exert less force, but there's so many more of them, and it just zeroes out. You kind of have the same problem you do with the rings, too. On the inside of those, they, the bits that fall away from you cancel out. Um, so when you're spinning it and you're increasing its mass, yes, you are increasing that gravity. You know, that's that's how that works. You could just easily, though, achieve that same effect by just adding energy to it, storing it in some fashion or mass. Um, but in the end, the amounts involved to produce that are so insanely huge that you'd just be better off doing spin. This one's a little odd. A little bit gross, sorry. Uh, Rob Hawk, thank you for your super chat. Rather than send new astronauts to the moon in the future, couldn't we just clone the Apollo astronauts from the DNA in the poo they left behind? What, you mean like clone the stuff that's left behind on the pod? I, I would be really surprised if anything organic was still left up there that was in any kind of decent shape. We talk about DNA having a half-life, but it's not a radioisotope. It's, it's just the way that it decays. Um, if you'd buried them underground and they got vivified by that, yes. That's what we did in the Dead Aliens episode with a mystery that I, I thought was really easy and nobody seems to know to solve what killed that alien species off. But um, yeah, I think one person did get it right in the comments, actually. 
I don't look though. I deleted it out of the comments and send them with congratulations. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, you could you can potentially store DNA or find DNA on something on any alias void, but the cells are going to die pretty quickly. In a case like that, and all that background radiation and and vacuum is not going to be kind to proteins. So I wouldn't expect to find any actual usable protein or DNA up there at this point in time. Um, nonetheless, if you had it, you could. I just ask the question is, what goes that astronaut do if you clone them? We, 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 you know, we don't have to clone Buzz Aldrin. He's, he's still around. Most of them all. Uh, and the ones who aren't, we, we, you know, they, we know where they're buried. They're, they're national heroes. So <laughs> you probably have much more chance to get DNA from them. Humming Burb, thank you for your super chat. I've been throwing the idea around to exploit the extreme environment of space near a neutron star or a black hole argosphere to mass produce Obviously. rare isotopes or strange materials. Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, so this comes up in a question. Uh, this is something we'll discuss more if we had the colonizing neutron star episode, but that's not going to happen because it died horribly in the pole. Um, but we do talk about it in one of the upcoming episodes. I'm trying to think which one it was. Um, it's what I just wrote recently. Atmospheric mining. That was one. So in the end of the atmospheric mining, which will be coming out in September or October, I just got done writing it. Toward the end, we give a little bit of over to what you could do if you're mining the atmospheres of stellar remnants or stars. Um, and uh, instead, just you know, place like Venus or Jupiter. And one point we make there is that when you're dealing with a neutron star or a black hole, the kind of compressive forces going on there, the kind of sheer gravity or energy gain in terms of potential you get there, could be used for some interesting, uh, well, at the very least, some interesting nuclear chemistry, maybe some quantum chemistry. So you might be coming up with some very impressive elements cheaper from that kind of environment. That's how we get things like that out of neutron stars colliding in the first place, is you know, things that should not normally be able to happen based on the cross-section changes when you shove matter down to, you know, here's an entire mountain and something this size. So yes, exactly how you do that is a little bit harder to say, but you should be able to actually run stuff through the yoga sphere of a black hole and potentially get it out on the other side. Very energy intensive process though, but probably better than super collateral. So um, we had a question from David Schultz. He says, I'm sorry I missed the first half. Do you have any updates on your adoption proceedings and your speech procedure? I'm sorry if you already explained them. Well, I, I would say on the, on the speech one, I would say this it's been a lot of improvement, except I seem to have picked up allergies 10 minutes before the show started. I started sneezing wildly. So you wouldn't be able to tell as much from my voice right now, because one of the things the, the procedure on my nose did was to make it so I could breathe easier through there. At the moment, that just happens to not be true, because it's horrible air quality in Northeast Ohio the last couple of weeks. Um, so the procedure itself, we, we um, fixed a deviation in my septum in my nose, which these things I must have broken my nose when I was a kid, which would be believable. I was a bit of a soccer thug when I was a kid. Uh, and, notice, and then we did something to fix the terminates in there, um, that are the ones that kind of move stuff through. And if you're easily disturbed, you probably don't want to look at the camera for a second. Uh, we did a, we a shortening on that tongue tie that nobody noticed. And I, I'm really grateful to actually have had a speech therapist who caught that because in 40 years that nobody ever caught it. So I am getting much better at pronouncing the letter R as in pirate, but I still have to practice it. So like physically it's possible now, but the muscles still need to be built up a bit more and I still need to get more in the habit of pronouncing them that way. So that's still going to be a little bit of time. On the adoption front, they call it a paperwork pregnancy uh, for a reason. And it takes pregnancy forever. too. Yeah. <laughs> so we're adopting three kids, so it takes more time. So we started, wouldn't we actually start the paperwork? It was like February of last year or? 
Uh, yes, so yeah. January, the last week of January yeah. of 22. So, actually, maybe we are into pregnancy three by now. Yeah, we'd be getting there. Um, and uh, let's see. So, we have passed the official six-month mark of having the kids in the household. We did that at the end of June. We were allowed to legally adopt them, but then it has to go through all the paperwork. And um, that could take months. You know, it, it's it's hopefully, hopefully sooner than that. But everything is, is looking positive for that. And I'm looking forward to being able to see my kids' names on, on you know, Facebook for a change. You know, so many, like, fun first-time experiences. Like, oh, it's the first time they rode the bike. I took the training wheels off my youngest kid's son. I taped it and watched Thing 2, as I call him, for purposes of this go down the driveway and back up again and only fall over once or twice and get back up. It was awesome. And uh, and I, I got a couple of minutes of video of that and I thought, I want to tell somebody about this. And yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you probably should not post your entire life events to Facebook, but at the same time, you kind of miss it too. So um, there's a lot of that kind of thing. Like the first time you bake a cake with them, you know, or whatever it is, the first time they're out in the garden, they got chickens and then we're having a lot of fun with the chickens and, uh, you know, they're going to have no chance to share that. So... Uh, we are looking forward to being able to finally get that adopted and done, but uh, it is proceeding along according to pace. We have one last question here that I can get to before the super chat. It's from Patrick Dunan. Which is more achievable, creating anti-hypertrophy medicine, allowing us to live easily on planets, turning them into ecumenopoly, or just building O'Neill cylinders, megacities, or megastructures? Okay. Um... I would take anti-hypertrophy medicine to mean anti-organic or low-aging type medicines, um, if I'm wrong about that, sorry. And uh, when it comes to eucomonopolises, I would say that those just, those would be very hard to build on the ground that you all, are. You, it's like, there's nothing complex about building a city, but actually building one is, is, is a monstrous endeavor of generations at every level. It's so much harder than any of the individual projects in it. Um, you know, it takes everything you got to put something like a New York soda, although that is that's big off then New York City. You require more construction than New York City. Um, but trying to make an entire planet, New York City would take more. Um, whereas it might just be that somebody Gondé says, Oh, hey, if we poke uh, you know, one mitochondria with this one little bit of radiation, it will act better and suddenly you, you will have so much lower oxidation issues and live three times longer. That might be as simple as that is. We don't know yet. Whereas something like an O'Neill Sonor or one of these other mega you know, structures, it might be that you design it, and that's a label of thousands of people for a lifetime. But once you have the design in place, uh, you you say, hey, robot, build that. And it's like, I will do that now. And five months later, it's done, and you don't need any more input. Um, and that's it. That might be all it takes is that design. So I would say the design phase for a lot of these things is probably going to be what takes the most effort. Um, but... Uh, Wait and see. <laughs> it's now time to cook Isaac. We have <laughs> a two-minute lightning round, and we're going to ask you some rapid-fire questions. Remember, the rules are you're supposed to keep your answers to 10 to 15 seconds or less. See what we can do on that. <laughs> First question here is from Stevie J. Is spin launch viable? Yes, it is possible to do it. I think it's probably a better option for things like cargo, where you can go with a lot shorter track and higher Gs. Sonabella, is it possible to escape the event horizon of a black hole if the event horizon shrinks past your position? In theory, yes. I think that you'd probably be destroyed in that process, though. <laughs> Rico Hayes, can we use electromagnetism for propulsion? 
Yes, uh, electrodynamic tethering, like we discussed for regenerating momentum on skyhooks, will be one such example. So with a photon drive. Thomas Tomasi, wormholes, are they possible or not? They work on paper. I don't think that we'd ever expect to see one in your universe. So, Nobella, when would you expect the first space war to be fought? Um, it depends on what kind of warfare. Like, we're talking fourth or fifth generation warfare. That might be much sooner. Um, but a real full-blown war, I'd say you need to have at least a million people living in space. We have one from Raven. What would the cruising speed be on an interstellar laser highway? Hmm. At least 20% of light speed. Otherwise, you'd probably just be using fission or fusion to run that sort of thing. But potentially as high as 99%. Intergalactic one might be that high. That sounds cool. <laughs> so if you like speed, go to space. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Matt333 says, which is the best propulsion method to reach nearly the speed of light? Uh, interstellar laser highway. I'll go with that one. For method? Oh, yes. Okay. Big laser is possibly preferably powered by a black hole or something freaky like vacuum energy. <laughs> we have a super chat from David Schultz. He said he made it for the second half. And thank you, SFIA, mods, editors, and everyone. And I'd like to give a shout out to Maya Skill and thank him for his help in moderating the chat today. Thank you so much. <laughs> if there's anybody who's a regular on Discord and our server would like to help out on future ones, please message him or me on Discord because I'm sure he'd like Oops. the help. So. And the last one I have today is a general question I'm sure many of your audience share. Will you ever run out of ideas for videos? Well, as you always say, what's awesome about the future is there's just so much more of it. So, no, we never run out of ideas. We run out of polls to put them all in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it's great to do the live stream. It's been a bit, and we're looking forward to seeing you for next month. And in the meantime, we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode, which is Earth After Humanity. We'll see you then. Thank you for joining us for another monthly live stream. If we missed any of your questions, feel free to put them in the comments on the episode, and we'll see you on Thursday, but if you don't want to wait, you can check out any of this month's recent episodes, or see our bonus content over on Nebula at go.nebula.tv slash As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.